Yaakov, you know this is not your house. Yes, but if I go, you don't go back. So what's the problem? Why are you yelling at me? I didn't do this. I didn't do this. But well, you're you're, it's you're, easy to yell at me, but I didn't do this. Yeah, you are helping. stealing my house. And if I don't steal it, someone else is going to steal it. No, no one, no one uh, uh, is allowed to steal it, Yammi. Yo, what's up, everybody? It's another episode of Real Sankara Hours, another free episode. Today um, today is Wednesday, May 12th, 2021. And um, there's a bunch of stuff going on in the world, and we're going to be talking about it. Um, we're going to be talking about India, Brazil, Colombia, and obviously what's going on um, in Palestine. Uh, things have really, things have really, really uh, escalated. Um, so... Yeah, we're going to be covering all that. So let's let's get right into it. Um, my name is um, Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson Five uh, on Twitter. And this is Peter. I'm Gun. Follow me and the Israeli Twitter account. Um, yeah, and I... uh, and also to keep up to date with uh, our episodes and our po- our you know sort of social media posts, follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter. And to um, support independent black media, uh, you can become a patron. Um, $5 a month gets you uh, bonus episodes. Um, th- uh, anywhere between $1 to $4 a month just helps keep the uh, podcast afloat. So patreon.com slash hours Again, patreon.com slash hours And um, yeah, let's get let's get right into it. So yeah, let's talk about India first. I mean, the... the, the I mean, it's yeah. weird just being here in California, like we're ge- almost getting close to herd immunity, but in India, it's like the complete opposite. Like there's been a, I've, I think so far, um, as of right now, I'm just, I'm just kind of looking at the numbers just to get a sense. Um, I think, it, yeah, a- I, I think India is over 250,000 and it is, I think there, yeah, it's like a few thousand a day. Yeah, in it's, terms um, of deaths. Yeah, in terms of deaths. Yeah, um, and there's 3.7 million active cases, and less than three percent of its 1.4 billion population is uh, fully vaccinated. So, um, yeah, uh, crematoriums are full, and you know some dead bodies are literally being dumped in the Ganges River. Um, yeah, because and... because there's no wood to cremate people is is what they say. Yeah, and so, so it is about as bad as it could get. <laughs> yeah, and the country already has like incredibly like very weak uh healthcare infrastructure. So, you know, that's that doesn't that doesn't help at all. And it, um and I th- think it's they seem to be having like uh 4,000 COVID deaths a day. And yeah, as of as of today, two hundred fifty thousand people have died of COVID. That's that's the total death toll um, in India for for COVID nineteen. And I think that's you know 
starting from the beginning of the pandemic, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's a real catastrophe. It's, it's devastating. Yeah, I, yeah, it is, it is the worst possible scenario as a result of sort of the worst possible conditions. I mean, I think perhaps in the United States where there is like a much more, I mean, it's still pretty terrible, of course, but I mean, it is more resembling a developed country in terms of like the healthcare infrastructure. You know, our situation may be more inexcusable, but in terms of human cost, I mean, it may be fair to say that India, when this is over, will have taken the worst of it. Um, And it is not, and, you know, it's not just, oh, well, India's, you know, poor or whatever. I mean, this is a product of, you know, very specific patterns of development. And also, I mean, you know, also just starting off with political decisions because the -hmm. prime minister, of course, Narendra Modi and his party, the BJP, which are basically a Hindu nationalist party. Yeah. Um, So very, very far right as well. Very far right. So this is uh, especially as we talk about this stuff happening internationally. um, I mean, you know, you got Modi in India, Netanyahu in Israel. Yeah. uh, Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro right. in Brazil, all these like, you know, far right dipshits who and, um, and Boris Johnson, I mean, and the calculation for them is one hundred percent human life it does not matter as much as profits. I mean Yeah. And that, you know, on their mind, like, it's gonna wipe out the undesirables anyway. So while of course they have to sort of adhere to specific you know, putative guidelines, I mean, they did introduce a pretty severe lockdown in the beginning but then they but before everyone was vaccinated and this is another interesting sort of part about you know i mean it very much is a function of underdevelopment and uh you know Mm -hmm. neo-colonialism because india is making all these vaccines but they export the vaccines to western countries um and meanwhile they can't you know make them for themselves because they're owned by pfizer who owns the intellectual property. And so India has to support, you know, the vaccines that India makes get support, get, yes, get sent out to, you know, what develop more developed countries. And, uh, and meanwhile, they can't, they can't, you know, synthesize it at the same level for themselves because they can't, because this is, this is one of the whole problems is, that you know, vaccines are intellectual property and pat- patented, so they can't just replicate it like that, you know, on as mass a scale. But also, yeah, the the government decided that you know keeping the country in lockdown was not worth the economic cost, um, but it was worth the human cost. And you know, I I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of it, but you know, the sort of annual massive religious festival that happens on the Ganges. They let that happen, started doing cricket matches. And, you know, perhaps most significantly, they, uh, they did, you know, they allowed huge rallies and like state elections to take place. And so, yeah, there were just all these just, you know, colossally bad super spreader events. And I mean, it's not as though they didn't know, (laughs) couldn't have predicted that was going to happen, but, um, there, you know, I mean, there definitely is a subcurrent among, I mean, I mean, Modi is definitely part of sort of the new, I guess, nationalist right globally. And there definitely is some sort of mentality among those people. I mean, in, you know, 
like kind of the evangelical types here where it is like like the, a small pox blankets mentality of like yeah like we are going to spread the disease everywhere because like it's divinely ordained to kill off you know the sinners and you know the unbelievers and all that kind of stuff i mean you you know i suppose that's a little bit speculation but i i i mean it is you know hindutva is like this heady mix of religion and politics so when it's all tied together who knows but you know i i just wanted to make sure that we had mention of that but also to even draw it out further uh oftentimes i guess among marxists you like india and china are held up as competing examples of you know what a what an armed revolution can get you because you know it's not i mean obviously india was able to kick out the british more or less peacefully but the problem is that though formal british colonial rule ended you know the interests of british and western finance capital kept india you know it wasn't able to develop at the same in the same way that china was whatever you think of Deng Xiaoping or whatever, um, China's ability to develop in a way that actually is able to eliminate structural poverty is a is a gift, is a product of the revolution that they had. And India remains in this persistent uh, set sense of uneven development and also which re- reduces its ability to properly fund, you know, stuff like healthcare infrastructure. And I mean, they're even just, you know, sort of people that there aren't even really records for, right? Um, You know, if you go all the way down to the Dalits, I mean, not everyone is formally integrated into the system, though. I mean, there are sort of... Modi is like turning India into sort of the archetypal techno-fascist state, but they haven't gotten there yet, I guess. Right now, it still has lots of uneven development, so... While China, I mean, whatever you think of their methods, was able to mobilize, you know, the state, con- you know, uh, the state capacities to aggress, extremely aggressively confront it, and also, you know, the state control of the economy to sort of smooth over any economic uh, bumps. Right, uh, India doesn't have that capability, and so they are kind of at the mercy. And I mean, that is also kind of what. <laughs> The ruling party wants so i mean it's definitely an extremely terrible situation but these are the products of uh capitalism imperialism colonialism etc well speaking of that let's go to colombia uh and before before yeah. before we uh switch um i do want to mention that joe biden recently um uh waived the patents for the vaccines um okay uh, wh- whether that will to what extent that will help India is is yeah uh, uncertain. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I was pretty I was pretty surprised that uh, he he did waive uh, the patent the the va- <laughs> the vaccine patents. Um, and there is a Republican senator who is urging Biden to withdraw his support. But I think you know the situation is so dire that even someone like Biden had to support a vaccine patent waiver. So. I mean, yeah. So his minute, yeah, the Biden administration yeah. uh, supported a, a vaccine patent waiver. Yeah, and how international aid is coming to India. I mean, everyone's kind of offering what it is that they can, but the problem may be too great even for that. So yeah. So um, 
uh, let's talk about Colombia and Brazil simultaneously because I mean it's, uh, different countries but same con- same continent but I-, I think some overlap in terms of the problems that are happening right now because so in Colombia there are these um, protests against economic inequality and police brutality um, and particularly like the economic the I mean the some some of the, the worsening economic effects of the uh, of the pandemic um, and so and uh, a- actually I want to um, kind of d- do broader context in this because I think particularly because we we talk a lot about um, uh, police terrorism and anti-black racism here in the United States but this is a the the issue of anti-black racism is is global and I think um, Colombia and Brazil are examples yeah. <laughs> of of how yeah oh globally uh, and also i, I want to say this i think like this is this is really important because i think um here in the u.s like because of the term latino latina latinx like here in the u.s um we have this uh perception of latin america that everybody from latin america is like this homogenized brown tan all of race and um that's just not true but i mean that perception is due to both the u.s media and also i think um the latin media we see here in the west because like if you look at latin media i mean especially some of the novellas or even like you know the latin music industry the latin music we get here like the faces you see are usually white people or or very light-skinned mestizos Diesels are mixed race, like indigenous and European. So, and that uh, papers over some of the, you know, deeper, um, I mean, not just like class inequality, but like real racial inequality that is a result of slavery. Um, and I think like the, you know, the United States, like we had a civil war over slavery. So like, um it's hard for the u.s to pretend that like it's not an issue whereas like in latin america um you know they had their revolutions and they abolished slavery but i think their approach is more like yeah we abolished slavery uh now we're over it and it's, well I think- <laughs> yeah well uh colombia and abolished slavery uh eventually not with yeah with like bolivar though not immediately even though sort of famously i mean we'll just go deep history uh, Simone Bolivar, you know, who's held up as like the George Washington of Latin America, you're trying to liberate, uh, you know, the colonies from Spain. Um, he had basically like almost totally washed out and had to flee to Haiti, which, you know, had been recently <laughs> liberated. And Haiti gave him like ships and arms on the condition that uh, he eliminate slavery. He abolished yeah. slavery in those mm-hmm. colonies. But he didn't do it immediately, uh, I think. Uh, I mean, eventually, like, pretty soon after there was, yeah, legally abolished slavery in, uh, in like, Colombia and Venezuela. But, of course, Brazil held on until the 1880s, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Brazil is uh, the last country uh, mm. to abolish slavery. Um, and I think, like, that, that, that's, that uh, is still, you know, kind of animates race in, in Brazil because... Um, I think uh, one one thing that's important to note with both Colombia and Brazil and and also throughout Latin America, there have always been black movements. But um, just talking to people I know who are 
like black people from Latin America. Um, there have always been black movements, but like black nationalism didn't really pop off the way it, it did here in the United States. I think just because of specific historical conditions. Um, I'm almost I'm almost done reading um, Pan Africanism: A History by Hakeem Adi, and he talks about Latin America, but even like in the history of Pan Africanism, it didn't it didn't really um pop off in i I would say like more spanish-speaking latin american countries i think in brazil like they 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 have like their pan-african like uh uh organizations and movements as well but uh, i mean i was i was talking to somebody on twitter and he said that like you know there's a number of factors like why black nationalism didn't really pop off in latin america but what what is happening right now what i think is interesting is that like there is a growing i think sense of um uh uh like kind of like black consciousness black pride in colombia and brazil from what i'm noticing like i think you know again because there's always been black move movements in latin america but i think like it's colombia and brazil are cases where like it's it's more um getting uh intense so yeah in the case of colombia there there are ongoing protests against um uh police brutality because the police were usually used to crack down on like you know leftist guerrillas and paramilitaries but now they're cracking down on uh protesters yeah uh, so and well, well, uh, <laughs> they also yeah. get a lot of support from the u.s government as well yeah i mean there's i mean yes the like <laughs> latin america as a whole's problems of underdevelopment come stem in large part from the interests of u.s capital and colombia is sort yes. of the most proud outpost of that uh, mm-hmm. to tie everything in it you know some have called it the israel of latin america and it is you know on some levels like the most developed colombians have a very high opinion of themselves they think of themselves as like the best country in south mm-hmm. america yeah um but it is you know undergirding that is you know lots and lots of violence and not just from the cartels which is you know obviously like stupid american movies it's like colombia cartels and they think <laughs> everything comes back to that but I mean, it's the, I mean, going like there's just been, you know, the, the I think in the 40s and 50s, it was called La Violencia, which was like a civil war that killed like 400,000 people. Um, and then, of course, you know, there are the more revolutionary movements like the FARC, um, you know, at which the, you know, U.S. government in coordination with like the School of the Americas course train like you know some of the most psychotic paramilitaries out there to yep. conduct you know just absolutely heinous terrorism <laughs> um and then all, all, all to preserve by the way like u.s yes. like corporate interests in latin america basically yeah right <laughs> right and like to keep the colombian right in power and of course yep you know once kind of communism once you hit the 90s of course and communism is not really like a uh a credible threat then it then it turns into the war on drugs but of course it's a uh, you know there's a sleight of hand because yeah all these paramilitaries and all this stuff is given to all the, to the colombian government to carry out the war on drugs but i mean colombia is also a narco state like all you know u.s client states i mean you know shit's bought off at the highest level and it's it's not a coincidence that uh that <laughs> i mean despite all this, you know, the war, like the drugs still kept coming in. Uh, one thing I will say, uh, as I've been kind of revisiting like Iran Contra and all this stuff in, 
I think a good way to think about the war on drugs was, uh, you know, basically like it was a war against competitors. Like it wasn't to eliminate well, the yeah, production well, of yeah. drugs. Right, it was yeah. it was like you know the CIA in America had its comp- had its you know set of distributors and it was using the you know the war on drugs was prosecuting the war on drugs on everyone who I mean obviously it was a cover for political repression as well but also you know to eliminate like any possible competitors so I I mean that that's like you know sort of the ongoing stuff I mean there was a peace process in 2016 with the FARC, uh, but that, you know, they've been dragging their feet on that. And of course, the Colombian right does not want to actually, you know, because the FARC has repeatedly said, you know, yeah, we'll lay down our arms, just become like a regular political party. But if that happens, then, you know, the Colombian right sort of loses its excuse to uh, actually do something about sort of just the massive amounts of inequality in Colombia. And, you know, what set off this uh, current wave of protests was, they, they call it a tax reform, it's actually a tax hike. Uh, Colombia had been instituting, like, a form of UBI um, during the uh, during the pandemic, but it was, like, pathetically small. It's, like, literally $36 a month. And I guess the way they said, the way they explained it is to justify it or to, like, you know, entrench it. They were going to like raise taxes, but on a there are a bunch of regressive taxes on like, you know, like sales taxes on on stuff like working class that would hit the working class. They weren't going to like tax the wealthy, of course. And so that's what caused the protest. That's what started the protests, which were pretty massive. And of course, you know, the pandemic and everything just, you know, makes all situations of social rest more uneasy. And, you know, in response to that is when the police went crazy, I mean, as they are trained to do in the U.S., in Colombia, in Brazil, in Israel. I mean, this is how they're trained to respond in certain situations when they deem it necessary. And that and that response is what sort of turned it into this massive nationwide uprising that is, you know, in some ways it's beautiful in the sense that it is like a nationwide strike because there is like still a very strong... Um, union movement despite in Colombia, despite uh you know all the efforts against it um but it's it's that carried out you know in solidarity with indigenous mobilization so it is actually possible that you know those two movements can work together and you know exist side by side yeah yeah and also like on top of that like some of the most oppressed are in in Colombia are black people so like there's also what I was saying earlier, like that kind of growing, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'd say like, um, rad- it seems like a growing sense of uh, radicalism from black people in Colombia. And then, um, then we can, I'll segue a little bit to, well, I mean, but same continent, but different country, Brazil, um, like we were talking about earlier. So, you know, Bolsonaro piece of shit, uh, is, you know, president of Brazil. And, um, um, I mean, uh you know he's just an absolute fuck um i just want to say that he's a real <laughs> piece of shit um and but so what happened recently though um so similar to police terrorism just routinely killing black people a couple days ago i think this was probably last week there was a police raid in rio de janeiro 
that killed 28 people, including one police officer. And um, it was it was supposed to go against um, it was a raid against, um, I guess, like uh, apparently like a, a drug trafficker. So for anybody like so, um, I guess what we would call like the hood in the U.S., uh, there are these slums known as favelas in in brazil and so yeah this was last thursday okay i'm checking the date um so yeah like there were like 200 heavily armed police along with an armed helicopter with a sniper and it was um supposed to yeah like so like so a lot of these slums kind of i think this is this is you know almost universal but there is there's a strong correlation between poverty and and crime so, you know, these, these slums, these favelas are, you know, just economically devastated and very impoverished. So this, it becomes like a breeding ground for, for crime. Um, and, and yeah, there is, there is a link between like crime and poverty. And then also like the people who live in these areas are mostly black. So, uh, so yeah, so there are police raids and police killings that happen in those areas. And, um, similar to the United States, like, there is just a lot of uh, excessive force, basically. I'm going to read a little bit from this BBC article, because it, uh, it, it helps contextualize this. So, it says, Human rights groups, including Amnesty International, said they had also received reports and images from residents saying that their houses had been invaded and that the police had killed people when they already offered no risk. It's completely unaccept- unacceptable, said Dreama Warnick, executive director of amnesty international brazil said in a statement even if the victims were suspected of criminal association which has not been proven uh, summary executions of this kind are entirely unjustifiable the level of violence caused shock even in rio which for decades has been plagued by high levels of crime and police brutality between january and march 404 people were killed in police operations in the city's metropolitan area according to official figures Almost all raids happen in communities where residents are mostly black and poor, and some of the victims are not even suspects. Critics say the operations are often badly planned and frequently end in bloodshed, while allegations of misconduct by officers are rarely investigated, with impunity virtually the norm. Yeah, sounds uh, <laughs> sounds like a very similar pattern here. Um, yeah, I wonder where they landed from. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, it, and... You know, this is yeah, this is the deadliest um, police raid in, in um, Rio's history, and you know, I I just want to make a connection between because um, I do remember like a couple months ago we talked about a, a police killing. Well, it was like a private security guard who killed a black man in in Brazil, and just again, just to sh- just to show like the uh, global nature of systematic anti-black violence rooted in slavery so like you know you see similar patterns of uh black people globally living in um you know like impoverished and economically deprived you know communities um and even even in the united states which is you know richest goddamn fucking country on the earth because of imperialism and capitalism even within the united states uh black people are still like i say for the most part like still a permanent underclass even even and i think this is this is something important because like people talk about like the black middle class the black middle class i mean the black middle class is like 
you know, kind of a mirage. Uh, I mean, there are black people who have like, you know, middle class salaries, but, you know, for the most part, they're still members of like an internal colonized nation, whether whether they themselves like to admit it or not. Uh, so, you know, like the, 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 this is global in, in the this is what you're seeing in Brazil is similar to the U.S. because this is the remnant remnants of the transatlantic slave trade. And by the way, like somewhere like almost half of the Africans who were kidnapped during a slave trade were sent to Brazil. And I think what's different about Brazil, like their whole racial categorizations different than here because we have a pretty you know in your face black white binary where in brazil like there's a lot more mixture yeah uh, right 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 we have the one drop rule they've got quadrants and octarines and stuff like that yeah and it things get really like black consciousness in brazil from what i understand is uh a little more complicated than it is because black consciousness here is like arises in opposition to whiteness and whereas i think with the u.s i think this is what, what was what was different what was unique about north america compared to latin america because white people and like europeans in north america settled here in larger numbers whereas they didn't really i mean they're obviously fucking settlers and colonizers in in latin america who were europeans but they didn't settle in large numbers the way they did in um in north america plus we had more like influx of like Germ germans french dutch particularly like french protestants germans dutch so along with the english so like that really consolidated a very strong white european majority in the united states and north america that whereas in the case of latin america there's still a white power structure like i mean look i mean look at the the ruling class in colombia like mostly whites and light-skinned mestizos same bolsonaro by the way is of italian lineage <laughs> he's not even spanish yeah like, yeah yeah i mean that's a lot of of the ruling <laughs> class of latin america is just like yeah they have you're like why do you have that last name yeah but hey. um th yeah they're the ones who sit in position to power but the the, the demographics of the countries are, are more like there's not as there's not like a cohesive yeah. white majority the way you have well, in the United I, States, except except for uh, Argentina, of right? Course, Ar and, Argentina <laughs> and and Uruguay. Argentina basically tried their tried to replicate America. I mean, they all kind of did in the early 20th century, but Argentina was somehow the most successful. Uh, and yeah, let the sort of settler uh, garrison population, I think, as some refer to it that the United States had that sort of created a white uh, working class, a mm -hmm. white proletariat, uh, that di it didn't quite shape up that way. It's in, yeah, like Brazil and, uh, and Colombia and Venezuela instead, because yeah, the working classes were definitely racialized much to a greater degree. And I think part of the reason you don't have that, the same kind of separatism is that there are more advanced Marxist formations. And I think a lot that drew, you know, from like the black populations in Latin America. So it was, a, there was, I guess, a better integration. So it wasn't, it wasn't like, I mean, you know, the CPUSA was able to do that in the thirties, but once you hit the sixties, of course, right. You had like the white college campus SDS left, and then you had other, 
you know, then you had the Panthers or the Brown Berets or whatever, but like they were, you know, they were organized separately because of specific, you know, reasons of development and, you know, as material circumstances. So, I mean, yeah, it is kind of like a historical question, but that is, you know, there's, yeah, there's a lot of reasons for why that that's happening, but now it does seem as though sort of, yeah, a new kind of consciousness is emerging uh, from these populations. Yeah, and uh, let's uh, switch to um, Palestine, Israel-Palestine. Like, yeah, this this deserves, like, I mean, we're already, we're already 30, minutes, 30 minutes in, so I think, yeah, now's a good time to talk about Palestine. So, th- like, things have really heated up in Israel-Palestine and particularly Jerusalem. Um, now, like... <clears throat> Israel has launched airstrikes in Gaza, um, and uh, hold on, I'm trying to okay. So actually, let me let me like contextualize what happened because um, so in 1912 the Balfour Declaration. Just <laughs> yeah, we don't have to go that far. I mean, yeah, there's a Balfour Declaration. Then there is 1948. Then there is <laughs> 1967 Six Day War. The 67 Six Day War basically uh, created the the sort of sort of modern quote-unquote boundaries between yeah and this go ahead yeah and and, well yes this relates because yeah 67 the six-day war um created the borders you know that i mean they're kind of meaningless now because of all the settlements but Mm -hmm, you know what we understand to be the west bank and gaza and more importantly and this relates to what's going on east jerusalem is between 48 and 67 the west bank was controlled by jordan Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the neighbor to the east, and Israel took it from Jordan. So this matters because, well, I, yeah, I get, well, why don't you talk about what's going on in East Jerusalem? Yeah, so, um, so, yeah, that's, that's a good way to just contextualize it right there, because Jerusalem is kind of, uh, I mean, it's a holy city. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not religious, but... I I know you know Jerusalem is a very holy city. It's um, it, it's well Bethlehem was the birth of birthplace of Jesus Christ, but Jerusalem is basically split between um, Israel proper and uh Palestinian controlled West Bank. Like it's pretty much split, um, because of just how sacred the city is, um, to Jews, Muslims, and Christians. And so, and, that, and also, well, also more importantly, uh, or not, I don't know, more importantly, but what one of the big things is that in the planned two-state solution, which of course is never going to happen, but <laughs> everyone still has to pretend that it does. Um, both Israel and Palestine want, you know, want Jerusalem to be their capital. Yeah. And so right, mm-hmm. it, you know, right now the capital of Israel is in Tel Aviv, and in in Palestine, it's Ramallah, but in the planned two-state solution, basically, it would be the capital of both of them. Um, and of course, Trump, um, the Trump administration, you know, <laughs> a few years ago, I don't even remember when that whole thing just kind of runs together. Uh, but you know, they this was always a promised move, like a bone to like the Zionist, you know, APAC. Mm-hmm. Zionist lobby and all the psycho Christians who love Israel for some reason to move the embassy to Jerusalem. Um, 
this is supposed to be like an ex- this was an extremely provocative move and it's basically like yes basically pissing on the you know whatever was left of the two-state solution mm-hmm. um and you know basically saying that jerusalem belongs to israel now but you know east jerusalem is still controlled by the palestinian authority and so what you know every I mean, the other thing that I feel like often doesn't get talked about with regards to the occupation is just the absolutely horrendous state of, like, Israeli politics itself. Because, like, Netanyahu is, like, the most corrupt. I mean, it's, cra- it's crazy that they that Israel would ever be, like, the world's the democracy in the Middle East, and they just have, like, the most corrupt, like... I mean, he really is a dictator. I mean, he, he, you're never going to get rid of him at this point. They keep trying to. But whenever it's election time, which seems to be all the time, um, <laughs> they, you know, Israel loves to stage these little operations to basically drive up poll support, you know, among the more genocidal oriented uh, base of the Likud and all the other right wing parties. I mean, it is funny that at one point there was something resembling a left in Israel, but there is definitely not now. So that is part of that's, you know, when you're trying to figure out, like, what is the timing? Why is it that sometimes, uh, you know, like things heat up in a in Israel versus not? I mean, everything it's always it's always like going on at a low intensity point. But there are flashpoints and oftentimes those flashpoints are just uh, elections, yeah. <laughs> Israeli elections. So this is one of those instances but this is this is a bit more than what is normally done. So what so what started sort of this yeah. new wave was yes yeah, settlers uh, in yeah, East Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. So settlers, yeah. So Sheikh Jarrah in occupied East Jerusalem. So there was supposed to be a forced expulsion of four Palestinian families. Uh, so basically, like Israeli settlers were just illegally uh, trying to take their take their homes and expel them, and obviously the. Palestinian families didn't like that because because I mean you know who who likes settlers taking over your home, and so um, so there were protests in response to it, and Israel responded incredibly harshly. So that that was really the spark, and um, so there were a number of protests, including um, sit-ins, like not like nonviolent sit-ins in um, the area of East Jerusalem, and uh, also. Um, uh, like basically at uh Al Aqsa Mosque, which is like Al Aqsa. That's like is the it thir- a, it's the it's, third holiest site right, in it's, Islam. Right, it's like uh, I mean, I hate to compare it to the Vatican, but if you're trying to understand the holiness, uh, of no, that, it's way more important than the Vatican. Right, but it's yeah, right, right, right. But my point is that like to 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 get people to understand like how holy Al Aqsa Mosque is to Islam, like. Yeah, think of like uh, you know the the Vatican or something like that, right? So there were you know not, um, there were protests in East Jerusalem and Sheikh Jarrah and then you know Al Aqsa Mosque and then um, and then Israeli sol- Israeli soldiers um, cracked down really harshly, even firing tear gas at protesters, including at Al Aqsa Mosque. And so um, Hamas, which is the group that controls Gaza, issued they issued an ultimatum to Israel, saying that they had until um, six p.m. to withdraw their forces from Al Aqsa Mosque, which is the third holiest site. Um, and so, uh, obviously, Israel didn't but, do that. Yeah. And so Hamas fired rockets into Israel. They didn't. It didn't 
I don't think it really killed killed anyone. And then Israel responded by launching air raids into Gaza, which killed over 20 people in, um, in Gaza. So basically, the news, like, they're framing this as, like, tensions and blah, blah, blah. But no, this is something that, like, Israel really instigated. The Israel instigated this series of events, which honestly is pretty freaking normal with israel like they instigate some shit and then you have to put it in the larger context of this 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 like decades-long occupation and systematic apartheid against the palestinian people and so yeah like the the event that sparked it was um you know these settlers trying to take palestinian homes but like you know as peter said earlier like settle settlements have been expanding into palestinian territory like for oh quite a long time to the point that like you know, if 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 you're going to still hold on to the the idea of the two state solution, like what what state is pal are these Palestinians going to have? Because it's going to look like Swiss cheese because of all these freaking settlements. Again, like these settlements are illegal, and that's in the context of like the agreed upon post sixty seven borders. Israeli settlements have been expanding into particularly the West Bank. And another co another context is a lot of these settlements, they're trying to, you know, take over, get water, essentially. That's another kind of resource that this is being contested is is uh, rights to rights to and access to water. So they're expanding, expanding into Palestinian territory, gobbling it up illegally. But because, uh, you know, the, Israel has backing of the U.S., these settlers get to do it with impunity. And then... You know, then they create like these, you know, these fucking checkpoints and all this shit to protect these settlements along with, yeah. you know, police, police and uh, Israeli security forces to protect them and and using routine violence against the Palestinians. So, like, that's that's the whole freaking context behind this. And, um, you know, what, what's interesting is that, like more more people are defending the, this is this is what surprised me is like now like the ally industrial complex has uh has latched on to palestine which just i'm gonna i'm gonna say like i in college i was involved in like both um like racial justice activism and like palestine activism and anti-war activism so i remember like when you know talking about palestinian rights was really fucking controversial and um now it's to the point where like okay there's more celebrities but and now like the sort of i guess like the woke industrial complex is like become a lot more sophisticated yeah. post Floyd. so i saw some posts on instagram that was saying like this is how you can be an ally to palestinians i'm like wait whoa oh now they're watching on now I, <laughs> I, I mean it, yeah it, that is very interesting because yeah as as sort of the situation kind of gets worse and worse um Israel's kind of international support. It's, I mean, look, the I don't think that, <clears throat> barring you know, it's something that you know maybe I won't just say on the podcast. Um, <laughs> barring that level of events happening to the United States, the United States will never uh, uh, stop supporting Israel. But uh, yeah, on the in sort of the public discourse and among you know what passes for the U.S. left and especially sort of in progressive circles. Uh, and, you know, on college campuses and stuff like Palestine really has kind of taken off mm -hmm. as like a as like a rallying issue. And, yeah, I remember being in college, not really knowing that much about it, seeing like a couple going to a couple of events and, you know, really just being like, wow, this is like some really heavy shit. And it wasn't until I think like 2012, 2013, 
when um, I really kind of started to piece things together. And even then, it's like if you would post about it, like I remember getting into like, I mean, I did basically like lose a friendship from some guy I like went to high school with who like later turned into be turned out to be a huge scientist. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, it's hard, you know, you also have to remember not that, that like, uh, for the boomer population, like, yeah, Palestine is all just like suicide bombing in the 72 Olympics, which, you know, mm-hmm. we're not going to get into that, but, uh, you know, they, yeah. And the kind of in the BDS era, um, things, have you know, they're, especially I think among millennials and zoomers, like. Israel, I mean, Israel's behavior just becomes more and more impossible to defend is really what it is. Right. Yeah. 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 Go ahead and I'll I'll mention. Oh, okay. Well, just so that like international pressure is. Yeah. It I mean, I think public opinion like internationally is starting to turn, but I don't I mean, it's going to be a very long time before that translates to action. And I mean, it is like in this kind of permanent stasis because you know, everyone has to pretend to agree to the two-state solution, and, but, I mean, really, the thing is, is that, like, uh, the, what Israel, you know, I was, you know, Israel's like, well, if Hamas would just lay down their arms, then, like, we wouldn't have to deal with this, you know, and this is all Hamas's fault. They always love to do that, but the that is actually the last thing Israel wants, because if, you know, the Palestinian resistance were completely disarmed, you know, then, like, Israel would have to actually integrate Palestinians into this structure and, you know, just and at just one, you know, one state with full democratic rights uh, for all people that live in it in that area is not Israel can never allow that because, you know, in its mind, in the mind in this for the Zionist project, there has to be a Jewish majority um, and somehow also a secular jewish democratic state and you know if you allow palestinians to have righteous because they happen to live there uh then you can't you can't maintain that uh i construction and also give palestinians equal rights so they have to keep propping up this facade of the two-state solution yeah and so um i mean i know i was kind of like making fun of the ally industrial complex (laughs) because just because like uh, you know, like how, uh, you know, everyone's like, I'm an ally to black people and how like kind of watered down it's become. But I, I wanted to point out because I do think it, it points like this sort of, I think like a rising level of uh, consciousness, I think among people uh, and when it comes to Israel, Palestine, that like just comparing it to like when I was in college, which was like. Um, shit, like over 10 years ago at this point, like like (laughs) back in the late 2000s, basically, um, where I I would say for the most part, a lot of people were very either pro-Israel or like agnostic or in the middle. Or really, they just didn't know anything and didn't really even understand Palestine as a country. Right, yeah. And now, I think the... I think because of... Yeah, I do think, like, now that that I'm reflecting... Just kind of reflecting back on, like, some of my years in uh, uh, college activism and even even after that, because I was still pretty politically active, like, after I graduated. um, There's been a lot of... um, 
really dedicated organizing among Palestinian American activists on the issue of Palestine. And I think um, even in the context of Black Lives Matter, like there, there's been um, um, a lot of uh, effort to link Palestinian liberation with Black liberation, and that's actually something that that uh, particularly drew me to the issue when it came to Palestine and challenging um, the war machine, and also like it, for people who know my writing, that's been a theme, a theme of my writing, which is connecting. Um, uh, systematic violence against black people here in the United States with um, imperialism and also like um, what's been going on in, in Palestine. So, you know, I've, I've written about it and like, so just, just as someone who's actually been engaged in that work, like I think I have noticed like an increased level of, of consciousness because of the hard to dedicate hard work of a lot of, um, well, primarily, um, Palestinian activists, particularly in, in, in the context of the U.S., Palestinian American activists, and then also like bridge building between other oppressed peoples. Um, so like, you know, particularly after Black Lives Matter, I remember I, I spoke um, at an event and at Loyola Marymount uh, University in Chicago. Um, and I was talking about making the connection between systemic racism here in the U.S. and oppression of Palestinians. And I did notice, like, even in that campus, like, there are there a lot of college students. This is a while ago. It was back in, like, 2014. Uh, you know, just, like, kind of um, uh, a sense of awareness that, like, that there was there a connection be made to be made. And so hence why there was interest in the event, why, why I spoke there. But just, like, I think over the past years, like, there's just been a lot of, like, really... Um, a lot of hard work put in, and I think I do want to, um, you know, especially for this episode, I do want to like, you know, give uh, props where props is due because, like, I I think like that activism is paying off in terms of like at least shifting the consciousness. Um, and now it's at the point where like, you know, honestly, when I when I heard about like this this latest escalation, like, um. To me, it's like, oh, it sounds like okay. What happened in two thousand six, Lebanon, and and uh, you know other other times where like, you know, Israel escalated its fucked up shit. But now I think it's different because I think there is like a, it's like people. I th I think in you know there there's always been like comparisons between Israel and South Africa, and now like I kind of think like Israel is, <laughs> I you know definitely probably worse in South Africa, but in terms yeah. of like it, it being like an international issue. It's almost like a South Africa, and I think like that's why boycott, divestment sanctions is is a very, um, you know, useful tool, and uh, one that was called by by uh, Palestinian activists like years ago. So I think I think BDS remains a very effective uh, tactic in the, in this context, um, you know, and and also like keeping aware, especially those of us who live in the U.S. I mean, like Israel's doing this because of fucking U.S. tax taxpayer money and because like basically like israel is functions as one 
a beachhead for U.S. empire in the Middle East. And two, like, a place just for the, you know, U.S. weapons industry just to, you know, like, yeah. sell their shit. Uh, I, I want to mention this, though, because uh, Gal Gadot, uh, Wonder Woman... Uh, made a post oh. and what did she say i didn't i didn't look at it i just saw that people were tweeting about it so i'll say the post and i'll mention their reactions to it because the reactions are pretty cool so she said on twitter this is on twitter she said this is a vicious cycle that has been going on for far too long israel deserves uh. israel deserves to live as a free and safe nation our neighbors deserve the same she said neighbor she didn't say palestinians uh, I- yeah yeah she <laughs> Well, she yeah, she's talking about uh, UAE and uh, right. Saudi Arabia. I mean, because that's the other thing. Wait, here's that, the, uh, that's not it's not it's not oh, over okay. yet. So, so I pr- I pray for the victims and their families. I pray for this unimaginable hostility to end. I pray for our leaders to find a solution so we can live side by side in peace. And the reactions people are pointing out the fact that she used to be a member of Israeli Defense Force. The, uh, the idea of the very same people who are just you know inflicting yeah. all this fucking violence on Palestinians now to you know because yeah she she's an Israeli citizen and it's mandatory for people who grew up in Israel to serve in the IDF. But still, it's like you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you, yeah. I mean, any yeah. At the same time, like there are like any like the Israelis with actual consciousness. Like once they get out of the IDF, they like backpack in Asia for three years and then spend the rest of their lives in Berlin being broke as fuck because um, they realize they can't actually make peace. I mean, you know, there are some people who grow up in Israel. I mean, they didn't ask to be born in Israel. And they, you know, once they recognize the situation for what it is, I mean, it, that's a hard thing to reconcile. I mean, it's the same kind of problem that white people have in America. Um, but, you know, it's there's no to, to be the kind of person who, like, takes that and, like, trades off the, like, sexy, badass Israeli women to, like, have a film career is like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you uh, there's some shit you really did actually internalize. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah. And I guess why and, I. That's why I felt. That's why I wanted to share is the, okay. the Gal Gadot. Yeah. I, well, I wanted. I mean, to sort of draw out the South Africa analogy because it gets that's often that often gets made a lot, and it's it's more than just a comparison because like Israel and apartheid South Africa were extremely close. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And you know, settlers got to stick together. Um, and but I suppose the difference is that like you know in the eighties like South apartheid south africa kind of knew um the uh you know that like time was running out that like the tables were turning and that's when they really started doing like some of the most psychotic shit you know not just in south africa but like with their neighbors abroad i think you know on some level like i mean if you think about things in the grand historical context like century-wide like we've been saying a little bit like yeah, but I mean, eventually something's gonna have to give in Palestine, but and I and I think like yeah, the it, I don't know, it's a very weird status quo because like it's profitable, it's very profitable. Like the like I think people don't realize like how profitable the occupation is, oh, and that's yes. really more mm-hmm. what it is in it because what it is is you have a testing ground for all this new kind of surveillance technology that israel then sells to everyone i mean yep. including china mm-hmm. uh i mean and that's they sell it to everyone yeah um and so if they didn't have a population to occupy and surveil and control 
then they wouldn't how how would they be able to you know have such good proven technology i mean you know this is like biometric cyber security that's that's their big thing of course we you know there's obviously like the the, the posting wars like they like there are literally like branches of the idf whose job it is to be on twitter which that's always my problem with social media is like oh there actually are spooks out there so it's like it makes you feel like you need to be actually on it but that aside um you know that but i suppose that the difference between that and you know apartheid south africa in the 80s is that yeah they were losing their allies um kind of one by one as they were losing as like those colonies were getting liberated and stuff um but israel seems to you know have successfully integrated itself with yeah, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's what the Jared Kushner deal of the century was. And that's what they're, that's their new strategy now. It's basically like, um, you know, because those countries, I mean, we're a far cry from 74 when, you know, Saudi Arabia, you know, would, went on an oil strike. I mean, that was over Palestine. People don't, people forget that. But that was, that was another thing that, you know, would have inflamed the boomer imagination, of course. But uh, we're far cry from that era of Saudi Arabia. Now everyone, you know, the worst governments in the Middle East, like they all just want to work together um, to get rich together. And, you know, they're all just they're more than happy to sell out the Palestinian cause. So I guess that is that is kind of the trouble when trying to figure out, like, is there like, is this really just going to go on forever? It can't go on forever. But um yeah, I mean, yeah, on kind of the international level, that's that doesn't look good, except that, like, I don't know. I mean, that'll all that stuff. You never know what's going to happen um, in, in the Middle East, I suppose. But I think, yeah, like you said, sort of the tireless work of Palestinian activists and, you know, the solidarity work being done, that is really kind of the only thing you can point to that it, that can give you, like, some level of hope mm-hmm. um, that, like you know something like it isn't a situation that can last forever and like you know sometimes like idiot science be oh slowest genocide ever like uh but you know the reason that like the genocide isn't successful is just because of the you know uh just her world historical levels of bravery shown by palestinian resistance and that i mean it really is like existence is resistance like every breath you take in in those territories is an act of resistance um so you know that's that fighting spirit will never die um and i mean it is you know up to the rest of us to be able to figure out how to support it in solidarity so. yeah yeah and 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 uh we're getting close to the end so i want to wrap kind of uh, mm-hmm. sort of wrap up um yeah like in terms of, yeah israel's definitely like you know the sort of testing ground for like the latest and um you know like uh state repression tactics and we- weapons and and uh you know like military technology and i think that's like one of the main reasons why like there is uh among many a, a one of the many reasons why there is this tight relationship between the u.s and israel and and now like you know even with the tech industry as well um and even like you know in the context of um the ferguson uprising in 2014 like you know there are more people who were um uh highlighting the fact that uh 
you know, a lot of um, U.S. police get trainings by, um, you know, uh, Israeli security forces because, you know, is the Israeli security forces have a lot of experience when it comes to suppressing a uh, colonized group of people. So the U.S. police are like, hey, look, we got the same problem. We got the same problem here yeah. in the U.S. We'll we'll learn from you guys. And even, um, you know, before 9-11, um, the U.S. was not a fan of uh, quote-unquote targeted killing or assassination, but Israel kind of normalized that, and the, the U.S. was like, okay, well, if Israel's doing it, we'll will do it too in the context of you know anti basically anti-terrorism counter-terrorism like israel's like this has become the you know sort of market itself as, as this model of like how to effectively deal with like you know terrorism like counter counter-terrorism anti-terrorism um and uh I, yeah i don't know how effective they are no i mean but that's not the point right that's not the point but it's like yeah you know they market themselves as like well we're we're like we're really good with uh, counterterrorism. Look at us. Uh, I, I do want to mention that um, I think uh, UN. I'm just reading this on Twitter as a headline that popped up. Uh, UN envoy warns of a full scale full scale war as death toll rises in Israel Hamas violence. And also, I want to like in addition to rising consciousness, I do think like what is uh, interesting is um, I have been noticing a lot of. Uh, jewish people like jewish americans um distancing themselves from the actions of the israeli government which is and but i am also have also been noticing that you know videos in israel of like this increasingly just emboldened far right in israel that is more explicitly just straight up anti-palestinian like you know there you know there's this video um someone tweeted i i retweeted both on the my Twitter account and Real Sankar Hours, I'll read the tweet by Nadine, Nadine Neshef. Uh, she said, this is this is the lynch mob in Haifa. Palestinian residents in Wadi Nisnes are scared after hearing hundreds are out to destroy and are calling for people to come help protect them. I am speak. I am freaking out for my friends who are in Haifa. So basically, like, there is this mob of, like, you know, Israelis marching down the street with, like, you know, like some guy with a hammer with two by fours, like looking like they they really Real want to pogrom shit. Yeah, like they really want to beat the shit out of Palestinians. I think there's another. You know, there there have been some, you know, marches of like just Israelis who are just explicitly just anti-Palestinian, and this is um, and it really, I think it's like death to all Arabs. <laughs> right, it really is. Like there's some very explicit anti-arab yeah. racism I mean, I mean they view they view them as the indians and they're the settlers i mean this is right is is it's a straight line yeah and so this is um you know this is incredible this is very worrisome to see like this level of just I- I- explicit like you know anti-arab racism but at the same time, like um, there is re- reason to be hopeful because um, of of the activism of Palestinian activists, and also like I think like really, really good uh, I would say bridge building because I, like I'm I'm I've I'm not into I don't really buy the whole like POC alliance for all people of color because that doesn't make any fucking sense and not, also not all people of color treat the fucking same by the way, but um, I I do think that uh, bridge building is good like it is worth it to build bridges with other oppressed communities and not take over their movements um 
you know, like, self-determination for all oppressed peoples, but, like, when he realized, like, okay, like, you know, there, our struggles, our struggles overlap, and it's worth building bridges, I think that is a good thing, and so I do want to, you know, again, like, pay homage to Palestinian activists who have been doing this shit for a long fucking time, um, but also, like, you know, highlight the real bridge building that's been going on, particularly here in the U.S. between Palestinian activists and also black activists, too. Like, during Black Lives Matter, like, there were Palestinians who came out to the protests and, you know... Oh, said, yeah, yeah. I, re- I remember going oh, to, like, oh, yeah. BLM and Palestine, pro- Palestine protests in Columbus in uh, 2015, and it was like, yeah, they were <laughs> the same people. Yeah. They were very clearly drawing the connections. Yeah, and then even, like, you know, vice versa, like, there have been black activists who've been, um, you know, like, working in solidarity with Palestinians. Um, so, there, there's there been really important, you know, bridge-building work that um, I think, yeah, like, uh, you know, needs to be supported. I think, yeah, BDS is a very effective tactic, just, you know, do more of it. Um and it's Sabra also, hummus, don't buy it. Yeah. Also it, soda stream. Yeah, and um uh before I forget, I, I wanna God, I have I have a thought on my head, but I'm trying to get it out. It's like it's this, you know, sort of just fart you're trying to let out, but it won't let out yet. But um Oh, I'll I'll just end with this. I mean like yeah, like there there is this like increased level of um consciousness and I don't know if we're reaching a turning point on the Israel-Palestine issue. Maybe we are, maybe we aren't. I don't know. Um, Oh, now I remember. Yeah, like, uh, I think, like, reflecting back on college, like, it was sort of like the mainstream position to be, like, support a two-state solution, support a two-state solution, and you were considered, like, a crazy, like, totally crazy if you supported a one-state solution. But at this point, I think, like, the two-state solution is just, like, you know, all that Oslo stuff is, is dead. It's completely dead. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, I've, I've usually tried to remain, uh, sort of distant from like, you know, taking sides on a two state or one state solution. But I do think honestly, just, just to be incredible, just to, just to say it like it is, it seems to me that the two state solution is just like that yeah it's it's not yeah. even realistic anymore it used to no. pe- people used to say oh this is the most realistic now it's like no the the reality is like like the, the two-state solution is not realistic so like whatever solution you know yeah like okay i guess like one state that's d- democratic and also pluralistic and gives like you know both cultures like you know a right to pr- maintain their culture i mean that makes sense but you know, I think like, if you're if you're in the U.S., like the main thing you should be doing is one pressing the U.S. government to stop funding Israel. Um, that's another thing, and two, uh, boycott divestment sanctions. I think those are the, the two things that I support 100. percent um, Ending yeah, U- ending U.S. aid to Israel and BDS, um, and also like yeah, like you know, um, st- staying on top of BDS and seeing like which companies are. You know, because sometimes it's difficult to tell, like, okay, which companies are, you know, targeted by by BDS and which institutions. And, you know, like, that can be difficult to figure out at times because you're not always sure. But um, still, I mean, like, those are two those are two solid principled positions to take on this. issue. Yeah. And and also, to be clear, um, because these because, yeah, like not buying, you know, cyber hummus or whatever is. uh, Yes. 
is is very is like pretty easy to get behind but part of the boycott is also a cultural and intellectual boycott so it is like yeah because mm-hmm. there because there's all yeah especially now like israel tries to be like oh so tech focused i mean this is part and parcel of settler colonialism is like oh we're so we're like the most advanced i mean there's a national interest in uh you know promoting this uh you know promoting those kinds of developments but it's also like people like what Yuval Noah Harari or whatever like I don't know it's it's like oh yeah that's who wrote Sapiens or whatever it's like no it's dumb Israeli settler bullshit um you know whatever like I you know if there's like an Israeli artist don't listen to them like uh, I'm sorry like it doesn't matter um don't like like actually actually it's 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 much it's pretty great when you're just like, ah, no, it's Israel, it's it's trash. I'm I'm sorry, um, like I don't. There isn't, you know, for I think you know a lot of lefties who imagine themselves to be multicultural, just being like, no, that culture sucks, and you know, it's that makes you sound like a terrible person. But like, it is really like a assertion of humanity to be like, no, this culture, which is just completely fucked from top to bottom, and can never like be um you know uh <laughs> rehabilitated um let's say uh yeah don't, don't just don't fuck with it at all at all yeah. anything yeah. anything support support everything palestinian instead yeah yeah and also like you know just to highlight the fact that there are a lot of jewish people who like <laughs> yeah. are not associating themselves with israel that's that's another thing that i found like yeah, that, that uh, no, has been a major kind of generational thing. Yeah, that's very notable because a lot of Jewish Americans are, like, when I saw this, in some ways I think what it reminded me of, like, the George Floyd murder because that death was so gruesome that, like, more and more people had to speak out. And now with this, like, what Israel's doing is so unjustifiable. That, like, a lot of, like, you know, Jewish people who are... Um, raised jewish and you know still proud of like their heritage they're looking at israel and they're like okay there we can't you cannot they can't like they can't justify like and some have have said you know talked about like you know times they went to israel and the kind of propaganda that they were exposed to so uh yeah birthright yeah so that's also some that is worth noting as well but um yeah bds um ending you know u.s uh, support for israel i think that's the best way to be in solidarity with the palestinians and um also um i i'm i'm okay with all forms of palestinian resistance uh, none of this like it is to be all non-violent well also palestinians have a right to self-defense even if it's armed so i mean what else yeah yeah it's not our place to argue like oh what is the most effective like no shut up yeah yeah um, yeah if, that's not what solidarity is about. right right it, yeah if you're not palestinian shut the fuck up when it comes to lecturing them about like what's the best most tactical just shut the fuck up <laughs> and i feel as a black person when non-black people are like black people should do this i'm like shut up shut the fuck up like God, it's it's like a kind of fucking paternalistic lecturing. That's what's annoying, and that that is not solidarity. Like you have to kind of let people figure it out on their own and find find the best way that you can support them. You can have your opinion, but it's not going to mean shit. Um, and I will say, um, as a dues paying member of the All African People's Revolutionary Party, I am proud that like the party I'm in 
um, has always taken a very principled um, position on Palestine in terms of supporting Palestinian liberation. So, you know, there are those of us involved in these kinds of organizations where that is part of our platform and our action. So anyway, um, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good way to end, end this episode. Mm -hmm. Um, so we'll do our normal sign out, keep the faith and stay dangerous. Peace y'all. Yeah.